2: plushcare.com slash weight loss from the blackest corners of your mind they call Pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Children of the night, and welcome. So, December, hey? That happened fast. I hope you're prepared for the holidays because if the pace of this year so far has been any indication, you've got what'll feel like, I don't know, three days before you'll have to hang the stockings and put the cookies by the hearth. I hope, though, you have time to dredge up a little holiday horror, as is the tradition. And hey, we might just be able to help you with that. Another reminder this week that we're still open for submissions. So if you're planning your days off for the holiday season, why not pencil in a little time to craft that macabre masterpiece that's been rolling around in your brain? Or for any of you who tackled, and maybe fell a little short, on NaNoWriMo this year, Maybe there's a scintillating short story buried in your manuscript just waiting to be hacked and slashed into life. Polish it up and send it our way, would you? Nothing puts us in the holiday spirit like the gift of horror fiction. Our episode this week goes out to our newest patron, Don Bobbitt. Your generosity sends a bone-deep shudder down our spines, Don in the best possible way. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to get in on the action, and maybe even have the illustrious honour of being our 100th patron, only a few more to go, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify and check out all of the perks. Okay, that's enough housekeeping for tonight. But let's get into some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Douglas Guillem. Douglas Guillem is an author and editor who has been known to compose a weird fiction rock opera, or two. He edited four years of the themed annual Triangulation, now in its 18th iteration, and is an active member of the Horror Writers Association. See him read classics of the proto-weird on YouTube and check out his stories at novel Noctule, Tales from the Moonlit Path, and Lamplight. Children of the Night, join me for Douglas Gwilliam's "Bassist Wanted, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: Experienced punk band seeks experienced bassist who can get up to speed fast for a series of spring shows, including opening slots for some very impressive national acts. You gotta contact us for details, you won't effing believe it. Rick is a badass lyricist, so your job is not that. The words are very important. You support that by driving and churning and grooving on the bass. Must have own gear that is not lame. Nobody knows, like us, that cheap gear's dangerous. Electrical fires look good in a music video, but it's nobody's fault but yours if your arm hairs and rancid shirt go nuclear, or if you're dumb enough to stand under Bill's 4x10 like our second bassist Ray did when it's falling off the risers. We are not your babysitter. You must be clean, at least for practices and shows. We have no more room for narcissists in this band. We are full up. Rick's a good guy, but he's a man on a mission, and you gotta follow or get out of the way. Rehearsals will be held at the Brownsville Road U store at Lot 14. Please park on the street. Amp provided. Go around back to the right, not past the office doors. Johnny doesn't know we still practice here, and that's for the best. He's been super shaky since that windstorm blew the power lines onto the steel roof and lit our third bassist John Saylor up like a Christmas tree. Don't worry about the smell. We're on the back side now, conveniently facing the ABC package store. We do go through bassists, but we get good press. Maybe you saw the spread in city paper when we had the big benefit to help pay for Dolores's funeral. She was number four, and that was a total fluke. We were rocking Germantown, and nobody knew her ex was in town, and the police said his aim with that old English 800 bottle was uncanny. Anyway. Our sound is hardcore, but not too hardcore. Rick's words matter. They have to get out. They have to be out there. I get that some things about this may not seem ideal, but come on, man, don't be a puss. This is punk rock.
2: That was Douglas Gwillem’s Bassist Wanted, as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in the narrator's nook, and the Haven Discord servers, links to which you can find in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
2: Our second tale tonight comes from Eugenia Triantafiu. Eugenia Triantafiou is a Greek author and artist with a flair for dark things. Her short fiction has been nominated for the Ignite, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards, and she is a graduate of Clarion West Writers' Workshop. You can find her stories in Uncanny, Apex, Strange Horizons, and other venues. She currently lives in Athens with a boy and a dog. Find her on Twitter at Foxes and Roses or her website eugeniatriantafiu.wordpress.com. Link is in the show notes. Listen with me, Children of the Night, to Eugenia Triantafius, April Teeth. First published in Do Not Go Quietly by Apex Publications, 2019.
0: My teeth feel strong this April. They've grown roots deep inside my jaw, clutching at my skull. I ate some olives the other day, dark and ripe and salt-crusted. I chewed them down to their pits and then again and again until I finally ground them all to dust. My gums got all bloody and shredded and the sting from the brine burned my wounds. Nothing, not even a loose eye-tooth. I guess that means more pain for me, more struggle, when the plier-keeper pries my teeth out, one by one. The sun is still hiding behind the mountain tops when I leave the empty bed. I do all my chores early and stack the wood for the fire, so when I come back, shuffling, clothes dripping with blood, I can boil all the garbs back to white. Blood is a nightmare to clean, and I'll be too weak to even walk straight. I am in the kitchen, preparing a simple meal of potato soup and flat bread. Since it will take us some time to be able to chew real food again, I am guessing a month before the tips of the canines break the surface, two months for the molars. When Jason comes in, looking serene and pleased with himself, there's a ring of dried blood around his mouth making its way down his neck and seeping into his crisp white shirt. His suspenders hang loose from his waist, but he doesn't seem to care. I sigh when I think of the washwork. He sees me and smiles with his wound of a mouth. I look away, focus my gaze on the pot and stir. His delight makes me nauseous, reminds me of my upcoming struggle. Sweat drips from my shaky chin to the soup. You're home early, I say, as if this is some kind of news. Of course he left for the church without me, and of course he is back first thing in the morning. He is a pious man, my Jason. That's why his teeth fall off his gums like the first snowflakes of winter, softly and with the wet crunch that makes you want to weep and praise the hollow fae. It felt like nothing, Luna, he manages to slur through blood and spit, that's good, I say, avoiding his stare. He takes a few steps closer to me and I shiver. The smell of gore and sweat mixes with the starchy steam of the soup. I hold down bile. He lifts a bright red hand to my head, passes his sticky fingers through my hair, makes it all wet and clumpy. It doesn't matter, I say to myself. It will get like that anyway. Anyway. If only your faith was stronger, he whispers, full of glee in my ear. And I drop the wooden spoon. It hits the floor with a clatter. He flinches and draws back. I glare at him. Go change, I say, with all the calm I can muster. He stumbles to the bedroom, the bliss on his face fading. A wild joy fills me. Not much can be said about the hollow fay. Except she wants our teeth. In exchange, she protects us from the outside world, feeds us, and makes our teeth grow back again, year after year. She inhabits the hollow places and emerges only once, at dusk, to bless her congregation. She is beautiful, the fay, in a supple, immaterial sort of way. Clean, too, for someone who lives in a hole in the ground for the rest of the year. Her skin is clear as water, her fingers long and velvety to the touch. Her voice smells of cinnamon and milk foam. When she speaks at the end of the ceremony, everyone feels fed, nourished in heart and mind. They forget the unbearable pain that made their eyes roll back. I can't do that. There's something wrong with me. I know I'm not pious enough, too strong-headed, maybe... I guess someone must be to be made an example of for the rest. But I won't be like that anymore. I made a vow to myself. I will march inside the church and look at the plier keeper straight in the eyes and sit on his chair and let him pull my teeth out without a scream, without even a sob if I can help it. And all this time I will be thinking about the Faye's rosy cheeks and her plum lips and her small mouth of too many jigsaw teeth our teeth, and I will pray. I am already on my way, earlier than usual. I keep my pace, fast and even. I don't falter, not a bit. I pass outside my folks' house and don't even stop to say hello. Mama and Papa are well past their sixties. Their teeth duty has come to an end. They are barren fields. Even though they don't want to live with us anymore, I always make sure to check on them. I can't blame them for wanting to stay pure, their faith unspoiled by my restless nature. There's a long line from the church, all the way to the crossroads, reaching almost to the water fountain, usually brimming with water, frothy white. But now the blood of the faithful has turned the stream into a sickly pink. Everyone is ready to offer their teeth to her, big and small, weak and strong, Nobody can evade the sacrifice. Not even the curly-haired girl standing a few feet in front of me. I can tell when someone is defiant. I used to be one. Body stiff as a board inside her white dress, leaning away from the church, away from the stream of people, eyes stealing glances all round, looking for a way out. The other reason is her parents'. Her mother holds her left hand, her father the right. They both stand on either side, keeping her caged between their grown-up bodies. She is not a tall girl by any means. At least not for her age. She must be around thirteen. It's when most kids are done losing their baby teeth and their duty begins. That's when the pain is sweeter for the fay. I see her watching the ones coming in and out like a hawk. She is probably trying to guess how much effort it takes to pluck someone's teeth out, how much pain they are in. I want to steal close to her and whisper in her ear, little girl, it's never going to be easy for you, not with that attitude. But I don't, because today is all about reverence. When we get inside the church at last, it's almost afternoon. The sun has just dipped behind the wide blue dome. I am the last one again. I thought I had done this right for once. But nearly the whole village is done before me. Not even my own feet can take me to the church fast enough. Someone has to be the ungodly one. And everyone has decided that someone is me. Even the Fae thinks so. That's why she gives me the strongest roots each year. Deep inside her cave, she must see my unfaithfulness and punishes me for it. Last year, at the ceremony, when all my teeth were gone and all I had for her was pain, clear and sharp, but somehow dull and maddening as well, like a hammer at the base of my skull, she didn't even bless me for my offer. She only smiled at me. A slit of a smile... With too many teeth, and brushed my throbbing cheek with her peach soft finger. The stroke of a finger and a half smile, that's all I got for my pain. But this year it will be different. I glance at the little girl, her hands still clutched inside those of her parents, dragging her to the plier keeper. How can someone hold hands and still clench them into fists? The old man is covered in bloodstains and different stages of freshness, none of it his own. He is over sixty now, anyway, his duty is done. And even if it weren't, I am not sure he is supposed to give up his teeth for the fay. I don't think I ever saw him moaning or wiping blood off his chin. Maybe a man of his position can evade the duty. His back is crooked from bending over people all day and he seems to be in pain. I try to hide a smirk this is not the time or place for it. Her guardians leave the girl in front of him. He squints through his glasses and brushes one gloved thumb over her deathly pale lips. I shiver at a memory not much different than this. Yep, he says, smacking his lips. It's gonna be a tough one. But as I dare to hope he'll leave me alone for a while longer, he turns around and calls one of his helpers to take the girl. Her dark curls shake along with her head, and she is crying her puffy eyes out. My heart grows heavier. A part of her pain has severed and attached itself to mine. But I don't falter. I stick to the plan. They take her away to a nearby room as she whimpers like a beaten dog. Her mother tries to follow her, but the plier keeper pins her in place with one glance and a few sharp words. Don't try to ease her pain, he murmurs. That's the whole point. She nods, lost, and follows the second helper to another room. The plier keeper finally turns to me. His eyes could light up a fire right about now, his perfect white teeth glimmer from the half moon of his smile. I can almost hear his thoughts taking shape on his face. My favourite. I take the hint and go to him. The girl's father still stands in the middle of the room, arms hang limp on his sides. He is making a face like he is feeling left out from this, but doesn't dare speak. He just waits. There is no pain reliever, of course, besides the fay's own sweet voice at the end of the ceremony. A divine song, before she retreats back to where she came from. No hot peppers, no lavender oil, not even some valerian root. These things are not for the faithful. My footsteps echo on the wooden floor. In time, the oak wood has taken on a deep burgundy colour. I try not to skid on the blood. He touches my shoulders, the plier keeper, centering me just so. I must give him my best angle, where my pain will be visible to him and to the hollow fay, whereof she might lie, waiting for dusk. Behind his bent form, the tooth-room awaits the offerings. There, the fay comes once every year at dusk to feed, a different kind of cave. On top of a sturdy oak table there is a heap of teeth, already collected to brimming abundance. "'Mine will soon join them, and they will be the bloodiest. "'I know how it's going to feel, "'and denying it isn't going to make things any better. "'In fact, I know it so well, "'the ringing has already begun echoing in my ears, "'a sort of leftover sound from past encounters with the plier Keeper. "'It is low at first, just a hum, "'my body preparing for what's coming. "'This is the moment where I have to prove my faith in the Fae,' No questions, no flinching and no cursing. Does the forest weep or pull away every time I cut a tree? Jason tells me this time every year. Does the cow curse when you squeeze the milk out of her? When you cut her and drain her blood for the pudding? No, because they know they'll be whole again come morning. Somewhere under the hum, there is a scream and a thud. It comes from the room where they took the girl. Then, yelling. I am focusing now. Looking deep into the plier keeper's eyes and showing no fear and no doubt and hoping that the message will reach the Fae. He pries my mouth open with hands like claws trying to decide where to start. The last thing I see before he begins are his lips, mouthing one word. Pray. Then the ringing in my ears rises to a blast, and everything turns blotchy and red. The return to awareness is lonely. Even the plier-keeper is gone. The church seems empty, save for maybe a helper working in one of the back rooms. The clanking of cold metal reverberates in the woodwork. I don't try to stand, just yet. I know it will be of no use. My knees will give like reeds bowing against the wind. The pain is too great. It fills the open space the people left behind. I look at my clothes, turning wine red and barely stifle a scream. My hands are crusted with dry blood rivulets. It didn't work. It will never work. The suffering seems to bear children in my body, even if I can't. Hello? I croak into the emptiness. Not even I can understand me. Blood dribbles from my mouth. My gums feel raw. Usually by this time, the crowd slowly crams out of the church, bodies brushing against each other, shuffling and growling in their pain, waiting for the Faye's song, thirsting for her gratitude. But I can't hear any roaring crowd. Maybe it's the hum inside my skull that hasn't fallen quiet yet. Footsteps echo from the back room and the father of the girl emerges blood-coated and panic-driven, clutching his face as he stumbles to find the door. He doesn't even see me. Moments later, the plier Keeper appears as well, out of breath. He is not his usual self, calm and sardonic. He takes one quick look at me and sighs. (sighs) Come on, he says. The Faye will be coming soon, no time to waste. We've got to find the girl. I look at him, at the outline of him, confused. Then a fresh but blurry memory settles in me, and things start to make sense. He glances around, worried, and helps me up. Droplets of sweat and blood have crystallized on his face, or maybe my vision is still blotchy, I don't know. I stand on my feet, straining as he ushers me to the door. We go as fast as I can walk. He eyes me suspiciously as if I had something to do with it. I saw you looking at her. Do you know where she is? Not every sinful act stems from me, I want to say, but instead I let more blood gush out of my mouth for an answer. Now I am sure some of it is on his face. She still has all her teeth, is the last thing he says before he leaves me in the church's yard and goes looking. I don't know what that means. Neither does he, I am sure. In my time, and his, nobody who was of age escaped the duty, except perhaps him, but certainly not anyone else. I can hear distant conversations and shrill cries of panic. They are coming from the woods and from the narrow alleyways, from the dew-infested rooftops and from the sunless cellars. They're everywhere. Nobody knows what is going to happen. Maybe something terrible will befall us all, or better only her. They will cry, of course, lament, and wish it were different, but since it's not, it would be better if it were just her who got the blame. An old couple passes in front of me, holding handkerchiefs against their lips and noses. They are my neighbours from two houses down. I suddenly panic and pretend I am searching as well. I don't want them to think I am involved in this somehow but they don't even notice me. They are still so dizzy from the pain they barely register my presence. They pass by me and disappear in the alleyways around the church. Maybe she left? Left as in abandoned this place completely. Escaped? That thought seems so bizarre I laugh at myself. Nobody believes that. This is simply a non-thought. We are not built to want to leave. "'Nobody really knows how the world is out there, "'across that forest, beyond those hills and over the river. "'We used to know, once, there are dregs of whispers "'hidden inside rumours, inside fables, inside stories. "'But somewhere along the way we traded something, "'something more than teeth, "'and the Fae's magic rose and unleashed itself into the world, uncaged. "'It's strong, her magic,' an invisible thread that goes taut every time you overstep the boundaries she has set for you, if you don't believe that all this pain will go away, and it never really does, does it, or if you feel you don't know the person that's sleeping next to you, even if the Fae chose him just for your sinful soul, the pious and the wicked, a perfect match, still she knows, and she punishes you for it. The wind picks up, and dust begins to settle all around. The voices sound more distant now. I rub my bruised jaw as I stare at the open door of the church and wonder, how does the Fae come inside to feed? Nobody has seen her enter, ever. We only see her exit right before she starts her sweet song. Then another thought crosses my mind, and I get up and stumble back inside. I am careful not to trip, my eyes still blurry. I cross the nave all the way to the innermost room, the Tooth Room. I fumble for the wooden door's sides. I jam my fingers in the slit and crack it open. I hesitate before I cross the threshold. I jump at the flickering of shadows against the wall. It's nothing, I tell myself. It's nothing yet. And since I am already a wicked soul, what does one more transgression matter? I step in. Inside, the air is more oppressive than even in the nave. It's putrid, like flesh melting from bone in slivers, and some teeth do have flesh still attached to them. Metallic-like, swimming in a lake of blood, and foggy like an early morning in the mountains and the teeth. So many teeth. A village worth of teeth. Some sharp and some blunted. Some yellow and others almost transparent. I squint, trying to find mine, but it's too hard. They all have a little blood on them, a share of pain. The table they are laid out on is covered by a big embroidered tablecloth, the one the village women knitted long ago stitch by stitch. But here is something else, too. A whiff of sweat and tears breaks the dampness with a stab of sourness. My steps are really slow now, bird-soft. I reach out my arm and lift the tablecloth just enough to see dark curls spilling onto the floor. Smart girl. Stupid girl. Hello, I say but I don't think she understands me. My mouth is a damn pincushion. She looks up at me, shaking like a scared bunny. Her eyes swollen and gauzy. A single drop of blood has carved its way from the edge of her mouth down to her chin. She is cupping that side of her face with a small hand, and I know they took something from her. Did they hurt you? I want to ask. Stupid question, of course they did. P- please, she begs. She looks meek, shrunken. P- please. How did she get in here? Did she hide in the shrubs outside and sneak back in when nobody was watching? I offer my bloody hand to her. Not the best choice, I know, but it's all I've got for now. She takes it and reluctantly emerges from the shadows. We just stare at each other for the briefest of times, not knowing what to do. I half want to talk sense into her and half don't. In any case, I can't. I don't have time. I grab her hand and try to pull her towards the door, gently at first. Her hand is shut, palm down, like a vault around something. Blood drops lace her clutched fingers. I look her in the eyes. She understands and bares her teeth at me. It reminds me of a dog warning me away. Her eye tooth on the upper left side is missing. It doesn't take much guessing to know what she is holding on to so desperately. As I tighten my grip, she is not so much pulling back from me as she is protecting the thing in her palm. Leave it. I manage to spit out. It's just teeth. It's also pain, and blood, and a diet of mashed potatoes and soup. But I don't say that. She must have understood me because she yanks her arm away, hurt. No, she says. That's how the Fae knows you exist. It's how she binds you. It's magic. Of course it's magic. The Fae is a demon. But it's a demon that protects us, however cruel. A demon we chose. I bet not many people can say the same. The faint smell of cinnamon and frothy milk slips in the room, unnoticed at first. What warns me is that the girl's smile cuts short and a tug in my jaw all the way to my gut. A delicate and powerful thread sleeping inside of me has woken up. I clutch my stomach and search frantically under my clothes for the thread the fae is pulling me from, clawing at my skin. I find nothing. Slowly and firmly, I turn around against my will to face her, paralyzed down to the bone by fear and magic. I see her now in all her glory. And I understand why people call her the Hollow Fay. It's not because she lives in a hollow place somewhere. I don't know where she could possibly live besides the fringes of nightmares and in that thread in my stomach. She is without teeth. She is without hair, she is without eyes, and she is without bones. I know now why she needs our teeth to fill her body with cartilage and bones and shape. Without them she is hollow, her mouth a purple saw, her eyes empty at the sockets, her flesh folded on itself in a way that suggests the absence of skeleton. Yet she stands in front of us and her non-existent eyes pierce me all the way from the other side of the room. She moves towards us, towards the table with the teeth, in a fluid way that makes my skin crawl. And the girl? The girl whimpers and clutches her tooth tighter, and she has pissed herself. If I could, I would collapse. I would double over on the floor and kiss the bloodied wood to avoid looking at the fay and hope she spares my life, which she probably would, but not before she made a greater punishment out of it. But I can't because her invisible thread has me upright. I want to be released of the burden of having eyes, but she won't let me. The fay continues to worm her way to us. I try to keep my eyes on the girl. I want to know that there is someone else there, that another person is seeing this, an anchor to reality, that I am not alone. The girl can move. She is stunned by fear, but squirms like a fish out of water. She can move. In the edge of my vision, I see the plum and pink and pus yellow of the Fay fluttering inches from me. Her substance leaks onto the floor in soft drips, and she floats past me like I am nothing, like I don't even exist. She kneels in front of her, in front of the small girl, and the girl becomes even smaller, falls to her knees, heaving in fear. I can't tear my eyes away, even though I want to. The face stretches one visceral hand towards her, one ribbon of pink flesh. Her manner supple and patient, like she is asking. But she is not asking. I know that. And the girl knows that, too. She demands the tooth and all those that will come after. The girl was right. I wish I could just move my arm. Just one arm would be enough. Only, I wouldn't know what I would do with it. Would I use it to pull her back from the fay, or tear out my eyes and hope I forget? When the girl doesn't move, when her spit drips to the floor from her parted lips and pulls next to her piss, the ribbon of pink flesh unfurls even more. It stretches and pulls and becomes a string that wraps itself around the girl's wrist. And then it tightens. It squeezes until her hand becomes as purple as the Faye's mouth. Until it doesn't look like a hand anymore but a bright and strange flower. I move too. I writhe and I seizure and bang my feet on the floor, but only in my head. None of it changes what is really happening one inch. The girl screams in pain and her hand finally opens, the flower blooming. But it is not a tooth she is holding. It's a small, rusty knife. And it clatters to the floor. If there is anything in my body that can still move, it's my gut. And it twists and churns at the sight of it. I want to laugh and cry at the innocence of the girl, at her stupidity. But it's still a knife, and a plan, more than I ever dared to imagine. The fay is taken aback by it. The strip of sinew that is her arm quivers, and all her cavities moan at once. Then she squeezes harder. But I press harder too. First it's my gut. It bubbles with anger, and screams when my mouth cannot. Then it's my skin. I didn't know that skin can do that. That it can seethe and fume and threaten to fall apart like a husk. And finally it's my arm. The one that's closer to the Fae. I don't think about my eyes anymore. There are no eyes in this form I inhabit. There is only boiling rage. And there is a flaming arm that's now free. And a rusty old knife digging into my scalding palm. And I stab her. I do. It might be once or a million times. I am not sure. I open plum mouths everywhere. But she won't die, and my anger turns to numbness fast. I am about to fall in a hole deeper than the Fay's mouths could ever be. But then the girl touches my arm. My flesh, where she touches it, settles back to human. She looks at me with her billowing eyes and says, Let's go. Let's run away. Smart girl. Stupid girl. But perhaps, perhaps it's worth a try. I grab her, or she grabs me, and we falter our way out of the church and into the woods, leaving the Fae behind to feed from her pile of bones. The world is a hazy cloud, and the people stumble around in pain stupor. It is not the tooth pain, though. This one is all-consuming. The face pain has branched out to everyone like the tendrils of a vine. A bunch of them have fallen in the thorny bushes and fumble their way up, clothes torn to shreds. Others are a hair's width away from us, eyes blurry from agony. The girl sucks a breath as we brush past them. Somewhere in the haze I think I make out Jason, or maybe it's my guilt playing tricks. He's dragging his feet to a cluster of trees not far from here. His frame shakes and he clutches his head. He screams, but the voice doesn't carry through the cacophony of people. I freeze for a moment. My steps become unsure. I am sorry, whispers the girl, the edge in her voice completely gone. All there is now is a child, timid and lost. I squat in front of her, pull down my sleeve, and wipe the blood that's still trickling from the side of her mouth. I wonder what happened to that tooth of hers. Did she leave it behind? Your name? I mouth. Elpida. She turns round and pulls something from her pocket. It is a glassy, white canine. It's perfect. It's yours now. A gift. I bow my head awkwardly, and take the small tooth. I take it because I know I am not going to have any more teeth sprouting from my jaws, now that the blessing of the Fae is not with me. This is the only tooth I'll ever own for the rest of my life, however long, and above all, I take it because this will be her first and last sacrifice. Come, I whisper. She nods, obedient, and takes my hand. I mumble a goodbye to Jason's shadow and pick up my pace. We walk towards the clearing. My gums are killing me. My mouth is a festering wound. I stumble in the undergrowth but I have hurt to help me balance myself. I already feel the thread tugging at me. I try to move faster and faster, daring it to stop me. It doesn't. I know I can't go on forever. I don't fool myself like that. I am a fertile field. The fae will catch up to me, eventually. But I'll go as far as my feet can carry me through the thick forest, over the steep hills and across the icy brook. We'll walk until she is safe, to a place where nobody can take from her what she doesn't want to give. And then I'll be done. My smile will be toothless, but joyful, almost divine.
2: That was Eugenia Triantafiu's April Teeth, as read by Alexandra Elroy. Alexandra is a bilingual voice actress and writer who lurks by the shallow polders of the Netherlands, waiting for her next bout of inspiration. She loves everything to do with stories, especially creative and playful horror. Her favorite voices to do are witches, goblins, and crazy computers. Things she brags about are her children, her stories, her Japanese BA, and her podcast on UK culture, One Cup of Perfect Tea. Thank you, Alexandra. Well, children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now... Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review you'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Borgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dredge up old secrets with more Tales to Terrify.